Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you once again for this time that we can be together in your house as we acknowledge week in and week out, God, we believe that for those who of us uh, who have bowed our knees to you, who have made you Lord and King of our life, that you live inside of us and you are with us everywhere we go. But we also believe that where two or three or more are gathered in your name, you are there in a special way. And so we believe your spirit is here today. And God, uh, it is good to be in your house. So I pray that you would meet with us today. I pray that your spirit would move among us. I pray that uh, you would open our eyes and, and hearts and ears to see and hear and receive what you have for us this morning. I pray that you would speak to us through your word. They are, this is literally the words of life. And I pray that we would leave here um, not unchanged. I pray that we would have an encounter with you and that like Moses, our faces would glow as we left because we have been in the presence of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're gonna be in Mark this morning, Mark chapter six. Uh, we're gonna read verses one through 13. Mark chapter six, verses one through 13. And this is what they say. It says, he, that's speaking of Jesus, he went away from there and came to his hometown and the disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, when I was growing up, we spent a very short season of my childhood living uh, in a town in the eastern part of this country called Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There, there we go. I knew I'd get at least one. Um, one day in the one summer that we lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, my parents came to us, three kids, and said that they were going to take us to a Pittsburgh Pirates baseball game that night. Not a huge baseball family, but we also weren't a huge, like, going to sporting events family. And so this was a big deal. Baseball wasn't really any of our things, but we were excited to go do something fun as a family. So uh, we loaded up the car, headed into the big city, uh, got down to the stadium, headed to the stadium with the many other faithful Pirates fans uh, who were there to watch a baseball game last night. And before I get to the next part of the story, you need to understand a little bit about our family. Uh, we did things frugally to say the least. Um, on the scale of lavish to frugal, we erred on the side of frugal. And that's not, I'm not saying that critically, I'm just saying that was the culture of our family. When we went out to dinner, we got water to drink. And today, when I take my kids out to eat, we get water to drink. I understand it and I 
appreciate it and, and I approve of it. And so we didn't have tickets. Uh, my, my parents' plan, my dad's plan was just to go up to the ticket window at the baseball game at the stadium and get some tickets. So you combine kind of the frugal culture of our family and the fact that we were buying tickets at game time at the stadium, the chances that we were going to be in the last row nosebleed section was pretty high. Again, not really a big deal. We were just excited to be going to an uh, MLB baseball game. And from up there, you can, you can really see the, the plays develop. I mean, you can really get a great view of, of how, how the game is coming together. You know what I'm talking about. So we're, we're, we're heading to the stadium. We figured out where the ticket window is. And we're heading there. But to get to the ticket window, you have to get through um, a certain section of a group of people who are there at the game with no intention of actually going into the game, right? It, it, it's different now with online ticket sales and virtual tickets and all this stuff. Back then, it was only paper tickets. And so there's a group of people, and I know it still happens today at sporting events, but it was more prolific then, uh, who were there not to go watch the game, but to try and make a few bucks, right? They weren't allowed to, and so it was kind of this deal where like everyone knew what was going on and they weren't supposed to be there and everyone knew what they were doing. So everyone pretended to ignore what was happening, but everyone knew what was happening. And you had to get through, kind of get through this line of people to get to the ticket window. And, and they were folks who were there kind of saying under their breath, need tickets? Need tickets? Anyone need tickets? Got tickets? Got tickets? Anyone got tickets? We're a good, upstanding Christian family. I'm, I'm fairly certain my polo shirt was tucked into my khaki pants. And so we're kind of not trying to make eye contact, you know, trying to make, take a wide berth around these people who are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. But as we're coming up to that line of people, uh, there's one guy there who it becomes very clear to all of us has kind of locked in on us. And, and, and he starts coming for us. And so we're going wide. We're going wide to get around him. And he's heading us off at the pass. And he met us there. And so he comes up to my, my folks and he says something along these lines. He says something along the lines of this. He says, hi, are you, are you folks looking to get tickets to tonight's game? And, uh, you know, my, my dad's probably like, yep, yeah, but we're just going to go over there to the ticket window and buy them. And he's like, well, my family and I have season tickets to the Pirates and we can't use all of them. That's because baseball teams play like 400 games in a season. And he said, on the, on the days that we can't use the tickets... Oftentimes, I'll come down here, and I just like to keep my eye out for a family that looks like they're coming to enjoy an evening at the ballpark together. And I like to see if they would like to buy our tickets at a, at a way discounted rate from the face value just to bless them and give them a great time at the game. Would you all be interested in these tickets? And in that moment, we all had to answer a question. Well, really, my dad had to answer a question. And the question was this, who is this guy? He had to answer that question with very little time and very little information, but he had to answer the question, who is this guy? Because if he is who he says he is, if he's telling us the truth, then this seems almost too good to be true. Like this will be an incredible blessing and way better than we could have ever hoped this night was going to go. If he's not, and if he's lying or he's not being honest or he's not being forthright, it could go bad. We could lose some money. We could get in trouble. We could buy tickets that don't, aren't actually really tickets. And in the space of a few seconds, my dad made his decision and he said, yes, we would be interested in buying these tickets. And so the guy says next, okay, well, we need to go down here around the corner to make the transaction happen. And like right off the bat, we're like, okay, that's not a great start. Uh, but my dad goes with him down, down to the street and I'm like, 
you know, did my dad just get caught up in a drug deal? Is, is, this, is this a sting operation? Is 60 Minutes going to pop out from behind the bushes and be like, gotcha, buying secondary tickets when you're not supposed to? Um, but they get down, to the, get down kind of around the corner. Uh, my dad gives him uh, nosebleed ticket prices for what are not nosebleed tickets and then comes back to the family. We head to the gates. We're not out of the woods yet because they could be fake tickets or something like that, but they weren't. We get, we get, we get clocked in and we, we watch the game from like the 18th row on the first baseline for nosebleed ticket prices. And I'm, I'm telling you, you can actually see the game just as well from the 18th row as you can from the 375th row uh, up above. That question that we had to answer about that guy, who is this guy, is a question that we all have to answer virtually every day of our lives. We are constantly, as we go through this life, having to analyze people that come in and out of it and say to ourselves, who is this person? Who is this guy or who is this girl? We have to do it at work. Whether it's your boss or your manager, coworkers, employees, customers, suppliers, we constantly have to ask ourselves, who is this person? Are they who they say they are? Are they gonna do what they say they're gonna do? We have to do it at school. Teachers, classmates, coaches, teammates. Who are these people? Are they who they say they are? Are they gonna do the things they say they're gonna do? We have to do it with dentists car mechanics. We have to do it with friends and neighbors. We have to do it with boyfriends and girlfriends. I'm not going to say we have to do it with husbands and wives because hopefully by the time you've gotten to the altar, you have some kind of answer to that question, who is this person? But that's not a given. And so sometimes we may have to ask that question of husbands and wives. We have to ask it of pastors. A lot of you right now are having to ask yourself, who is this guy? And is he going to get to a point here? And, and the answer is yes, I am. We constantly have to ask ourselves, we're constantly having to ask ourselves, who is this? Who is this guy? Who is this girl? Who is this person? And the answer to that question greatly affects how we live our lives. Now, we're in church. And so there's someone else we have to answer that question about. I tried to think of some creative way to come in the back door on this, but I'm a preacher of God's word in a church on a Sunday morning, so you know where this is going. There's another person we have to ask that question of, and that is Jesus. All of us have to answer the question when it comes to Jesus Christ, who is this guy? Some of us think we know Jesus really well. Some of us may hardly know him or not know him at all. Most of us are probably somewhere in the middle. But what is clear from God's word is that Jesus doesn't just expect us to decide who he is. He, he demands it. And I don't mean that in a negative way. We have to answer the question, who is this guy? And here's, here's I'm going to make a, might be a controversial statement. I think it's the most important question we can answer in life. I think the most important question we can answer in life is who is Jesus Christ? I've shared this quote with you before. It's just so good, I got to use it again. It's from a pastor and theologian and author named A.W. Tozer. He said famously in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And as we're continuing our series in Mark today that we're calling Let's Go, uh, we are going to see in the text that I just read, not one, but I would argue two responses to the question, who is this guy 
when it comes to Jesus. Now, right up front, it doesn't look like there's two responses. It looks like there's just one. But I'm going to try and make the case as we work through this sermon that, that Mark is actually giving us two responses to who is this guy and comparing and contrasting them in these 13 verses that I just read. And here's the thing I want you to have hanging kind of in the back of your mind as we work through these verses, and it is this. The difference in response between the two parties we're going to look at is very minimal. It is a very slight difference between the two responses we're going to look at to who is this guy. But the results of those responses couldn't be more different. Who is this guy? Who is Jesus Christ? The first thing I want to draw out as we look at these two responses from Mark chapter 6 is this. Knowing is not believing. Knowing is not believing. So, as we pick up the, the narrative that we are working through in Mark, if you were with us last week, you'll re- hopefully remember. If you weren't with us, let me just give you a quick summary. Last week, we met two people that Jesus came into their lives, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, and a woman who had been suffering from bleeding for 12 years. Both of them came to Jesus in hope that he could do for them what they could not do for themselves. There was a theme from last week's passage of faith, of belief, And it was not a fully formed faith. It was not a fully uh, worked out, fully comprehending, understanding belief or faith. But there was some shred or semblance of faith, both from Jairus and the woman as they came to Jesus. I want us to remember that because as we come now to the very next passage of Scripture, Mark chapter 6, the first uh, six verses of chapter 6, right on the heels of these two stories about the faith of these people, we come to Mark giving us an incredible contrast in the response to Jesus. So, Jesus goes home. It doesn't say it in this passage, but we know that to be the town of Nazareth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. Uh, Thanksgiving is coming up. Not for them here, but for us. I, that, I'm, I'm coming back to present day. A lot, of, a lot of us will be traveling home for Thanksgiving or a lot of us will be receiving into our home people who's, for, who are coming back home to see us. We don't know if it was Thanksgiving for Jesus, but he's been gone for a little while. He's been doing a public ministry. He's been traveling around preaching, teaching about the kingdom of God. He has been healing people, casting out demons, raising people from the dead. Word has gotten out about him. And Nazareth's most famous son, has come back home. And look at how they receive him. Pick me up in verse 2. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they what? They took offense at him. How do they respond to Jesus coming back into their town? They start saying, not who is this guy, but who does this guy think he is? Jesus, as was his custom, preaches in the synagogue. And apparently, after reading through the Gospels, as was the custom of most people who heard him preach in a synagogue, they are less than impressed or enthused with who he is claiming to be and what he is doing. The people who knew Jesus best did not believe he was who he said he was. He comes in. His reputation now precedes him. We don't know what he taught on that morning, but probably the kingdom of God. And what is the reaction of the people of his hometown? They say, who does this guy think he is? I know this guy. He, I babysat him. I changed this guy's diapers. I can remember him picking his nose in synagogue. He built my kitchen table. 
He, he built the shed in my backyard. He's never studied under a rabbi. Who is this guy? Because knowing is not necessarily believing. They knew who he was. In fact, the people in Nazareth knew Jesus better than anyone else, right? Jesus shows up in the other towns. They've never seen him before. They maybe have heard a little bit about him. He preaches about God. He heals their sick and he leaves. He spent 30 years of his life thereabouts in Nazareth. And probably because they knew him so well, it made it that much harder for them to believe he was who he said he was. And we actually have a phrase in our modern day lexicon that speaks to exactly this. Some of you may know it. Have you ever heard of the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? That's what's going on here in the first part of this passage. You know what the idea of familiarity breeds contempt is? It's the idea that the more you get to know someone or something, the less you like it. And we know that by experience, right? The more you get to know somebody, their warts, their, their insecurities, their annoying habits, their sinful nature, the more you get to know someone and realize they are a broken, flawed human just like you, the harder it is to like them. Do you know what, you know what, you know what irreconcilable differences really means? Familiarity bred contempt. I got to know this person so well and actually when I got to know him, I didn't really like him. And here's the thing. The same thing can happen with Jesus. Now, I got to be really careful here. Do not hear me saying that Jesus has warts or insecurities or annoying habits or things that would make us not want to like him. In fact, the opposite. The, the truth of God's word, the beauty of Jesus Christ is I believe the more we get to know him, truly know him, the more we will fall in love with him. Amen. But there is a danger when we think we know who Jesus is and he becomes so familiar and so common that it actually becomes difficult for us to believe that he is who he says he is. Those people in Nazareth thought they knew Jesus. They didn't. And because they thought they knew him, they could not believe in who he was. Now here, here's where I want to pause for us in the church. I think for a lot of us, we read these verses and we're like, yep, those are the outsiders. Those are the pagans. Those are the people. Those are the liberals. Those are the, those are the people who think they know Jesus, but they just know a caricature of him. And of course, they're not going to believe in him. The people of Nazareth, as I've said already, were the people who knew Jesus better than anybody else. And if we're going to import that to our context today, who are the people who know Jesus better than anybody else? Who are the people who think they know Jesus better than anybody else? Someone wants to say pastors, and that's not what I'm getting at. Christians. I heard someone say it. It's the people in the church. And so I think this is a word for us in the church. Because who are the people today who can be like, I grew up with Jesus. I've known him since I was five. It's the people who grew up in the church. And the danger, the warning of this first part of Mark chapter 6 is this. It is very easy to become so comfortable with Jesus, to think that we know a version of Jesus that is not the real one and actually never know him. We, I talked about this several weeks ago and we're thinking about the, the mission statement for our church. It is one thing to know about Jesus. It is another thing to actually know Jesus. Here's a litmus test, and, and I'm gonna, we're, we're going put to put an end to this point and move on, but here's a, here's a good litmus test. If your Jesus never disagrees with you, I think it is safe to question whether you are actually knowing the real Jesus. 
If your Jesus always lines up with every one of your personal opinions on, on politics and government and masks and vaccines and a hundred other issues that are wreaking secondary and, and non-essential issues that are wreaking havoc in God's church right now, if your Jesus always and only agrees with your viewpoint, I think it is safe to question whether you are actually knowing the real Jesus. Because it is possible to know and not actually believe. Knowing does not mean believing. All right, that's the first thing I want to draw out. Second thing I want to draw out is this. Our belief matters. Our belief matters. Now, even as I was preparing this sermon and, and, I, and I, I came up with that, I was like, Gary, that is so duh. Like, duh, our belief matters. Like, that is so simple. But just hang with me and let me show you what I'm getting at in the text that we are looking at, in the text that we are looking at today. So, uh, so Jesus' uh, hometown is offended by him. And then it says in verse four, Jesus says this, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Most scholars believe that actually was a proverb that was well known outside of biblical literature in that time. We have examples of it coming from other places that is not the Bible at that time. That was the first century Palestinian version of familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus is saying, I get it. Not that he approves of it, but, but you know me, you think you know me really well and that has made it harder for you to believe in me. And then we go on to verse five. And I, I, I didn't want to have to talk about this because this is challenging theologically, but it's in the text and there's a word for us in it, so we got to go to it. Verse five says this, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Do you see where that gets tricky theologically? Like, that's one where, where, where a lot of us, when we're reading the Bible, we're like, that doesn't really fit into my theological box, and so we're just going to pass over it. But, but, but we're not going to do that. I don't, have the, I don't have the liberty of doing that. So let's talk about verse 5 and try and understand what we think Mark is communicating to us in that passage. What I said we're talking about right now is that our belief matters. And so the plain meaning of this verse that we have to accept is there was a correlation between the disbelief and offense that the people of Nazareth held for Jesus and his ability to do works in their midst. Now, does that mean that God is not all-powerful? You could have all said no. That, that's, that, was a, that was a freebie. God is all-powerful. This is not saying that in some way that town's disbelief held Jesus captive or had control over him. He is king of kings, lord of lords, sovereign of all creation, creator of everything. If he wanted to do mighty work after mighty work after mighty work in Nazareth, he could have done it. But there is in some way a lack of faith or a lack of belief in Jesus. In those instances, God will choose to limit his work in that space or in that person's life. That is, that is kind of uncomfortable and we don't like that. But that is the plain meaning of this, this, this verse and this text and we got to hold it in tension. Our belief matters or our lack of belief matters for God's work and power in our lives. Now, I, that might make us a little bit uncomfortable but when we actually think about it, that's true in so many areas of our lives. I could, I could give you a bunch of examples. Here's the one I want to give you. 
sunblock. I thought it was very appropriate on a day like today to talk about sunblock. If you do not believe in sunblock, if you don't believe that it works, if you put it on par with snake oil and you believe that sunblock is an ineffective cream that some corporation has come up with to steal money out of our pockets, then sunblock can do no mighty work in your life. If you go to the beach, if I, I let's not say you, let's say me. If my pale, white, Midwestern complexion goes to the California beach for hours upon end with my family, and I do not choose to exhibit any faith or belief in sunblock, I am going to have several days of extreme discomfort. If I don't believe in sunblock, I hope I believe in aloe vera lotion because I'm going to need it. If you don't believe in sunblock, it can't help you. And the same works with God. If you don't believe in God, if you don't have faith, some level of faith in God, there is going to be a limit on the work and power that he does, the power and work that he exhibits in your life. Now, again, I gotta, I gotta qualify this. This is not a prosperity message. Do not hear me saying, well, if God's not working in your life, then you don't have enough faith. And if you just have more faith, then more blessings will come your way. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what Mark is saying. And we're going to get to the, the final point, and I'm going to speak totally against that line of thinking. It's false. It's not true. It's a lie from the pit of hell. But, ooh, I'm going to take it. There is, some, there is some level where we have to understand that our belief, our faith, has some impact on the work and power that God exhibits in our life. Do you remember in the previous chapter, the woman who was healed by touching Jesus' garment? Do you remember what he said to her? Chapter 5, verse, 40, verse 34. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Knowing is not believing. And our belief matters. Now, that could be super discouraging for someone who's here today and is like, I'm not sure I have faith. And so you're telling me that that shuts God out. I'm not saying that at all. God still works in people's lives when they don't show any faith at all. But that's not, that's the exception, not the rule. There is hope because of the last thing I want to talk about and it is this. A little faith, a little belief goes a long way. A little belief goes a long way. I would actually say a little belief goes a very long way. Amen. So this is, where I'm gonna, this is where I'm gonna try and show us that I think there are two responses to Jesus that are being exhibited in this passage. So we've seen the response of Nazareth, and now we get to verse seven and what happens. The disciples re-enter the picture. Good old disciples. Now it's been a minute since we've heard from the disciples, right? And so for us to understand how these two sections are connected, and I believe they are connected, we have to get a sense for where are the disciples in this moment in their answer to the question, who is this guy? So the last thing we heard from the disciples was in chapter 5. It's when Jesus gets touched by the woman who's bleeding. And he says, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what are you talking about? Everyone's touching you. And then the thing before that, the last thing we heard before that from the disciples is at the end of chapter 4. This is what's so great about preaching exegetically through, through big chunks of scripture because it's connected. And what happened in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, is the disciples were in a boat with Jesus and they got caught in the Sea of Galilee on an enormous, in an enormous storm. And Jesus stood up in the middle of the boat and he spoke words 
and he calmed the storm with his words. And what does chapter 4, verse 41 tell us about the disciples and their relationship to Jesus in that moment? It says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So, what is the disciples' answer to the question as we come to chapter 6, who is this guy? They're terrified of him and they're confused by him. They're afraid and they're unsure of who Jesus is. And then we get to verse 7. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Then he gives them the instructions and jump down with me to verses 12 and 13. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So let us see the, con the contrast. Nazareth, offended by Jesus. Disciples, afraid of Jesus. Nazareth, sure they know who Jesus is. Disciples, unsure of who Jesus is. Nazareth, no mighty works. In fact, scholars say the few people that he laid his hands on and healed were probably the ones who exhibited a small amount of faith or belief in him. Nazareth, no mighty works. Disciples, many mighty works. Preaching the gospel, casting out demons, healing people who are sick. And here it is. God's word does not tell us that in that moment the disciples had fully formed, fully fleshed out, fully confident assurance in who Jesus was, what he was capable of, who he claimed to be. They had a shred of faith. They had a shred of belief. Who is this that the wind and the sea obey him? We are terrified of him. And for God, that tiny shred of belief or faith was enough to do many mighty works. All it takes is a little bit of faith. All it takes is a little bit of unformed, unsure, fearful belief, and God can work wonders with it. A couple of weeks ago, uh, on, a Monday, on a Monday at lunchtime, Beth and I went out to lunch. You remember I told you last week all our kids are in school. So uh, we went out to lunch on Monday, and then uh, we, we had coffee together afterwards. Literally the highlight of my week, highlight of my month. And um, we walked to the little downtown area that's within a walking distance from our house. Uh, and as we were finishing up, it was about time for kids to get picked up from school. And so we're walking back towards our house, which the elementary school is on the way. And so Beth peels off and goes to the elementary school to pick up our little ones. And I continue to our house to get the car because I need to go to the middle school uh, to pick up our middle schooler. As I get to the house, I realize that Beth was the one who had the house key. And she is back at the elementary school. And it's not that far. I could have, you know, I could have jogged over there and jogged back. But I was like, let me see if I can break into my own house. <laughs> and it was so easy that I have a lot, of, a lot of fear about if someone else wanted to break into my house. I, I, I checked all the windows. I found one in the back corner in our boys' bedroom that, had about, that was opened by about that much. I pulled out the screen. I wiggled my fingers underneath that window, I lifted it up, and then I projectiled myself headfirst into our boy's bedroom. Opened the door, went back out, put the screen in, closed the window, good to go. All I needed to get into my house 
was that tiny little crack. All I needed to get in there was just a tiny, almost imperceptible opening. And it was enough for me to get my fingers in there and then get my whole body in there and open the house up. And God works the same way. Someone is here today and you're like, I don't have a huge amount of faith. I don't have a huge amount of belief. Like you might just have started to get to know who Jesus is. You might have been walking with him for 50 years. And you're like, I don't have a ton of faith. I don't have a ton of belief right now. Here's the encouragement. You don't need a lot. All you need, all you need is a tiny crack. All you need is a little bit of faith and God can do amazing work in and through you with just that tiny bit of faith. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit right now, but in chapter nine, a few chapters from now, probably a few months from now, we'll get to it. We're going to meet a father whose son is possessed by a demon and Jesus heals him. And he says something to Jesus that is just like, like should be the, the rallying cry for every one of us that calls ourselves a follower of Jesus. He says, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. And it seems like this weird contradictory statement, but that is the posture of a disciple of Jesus Christ. I believe but I got some unbelief too and I need you to help me with it. And God looks at someone like that and he is like, I can work with this. We can do something with this because all it takes is a little bit of faith and God can do amazing things. And if that is true, and it is true, what it means is that God can use anyone. God can use anyone. If you are here today and you are like, I'm hanging on by a thread. I'm at the end of my rope. I do not know how much more I can take. Be encouraged. Do not fear, only believe. Because the message of this passage is that you do not need a theological degree. You do not need a fully formed, fully confident, I know who God is and what he has done, faith for God to work and move in your life. You just need to be able to say, God help my unbelief. And that posture is enough. Because a little bit of faith What's this, what is this point? A little bit of faith goes a long way. So here we are. We're headed to the ticket window of life. We just want to get in on the game. We just want to get in on the fun. We know we're probably headed for the nosebleed seats, but that's okay with us because we just want to get into the game. And as we're headed towards that ticket window, someone's eyeing us like a 30-something Middle Eastern carpenter, the son of Mary. Probably has long hair and a beard, weird robe, cheap sandals. He probably doesn't smell great, honestly. And that's not, that's not sacrilegious. That's just the culture. And we're trying to make a wide berth. And he's heading us off at the pass. And we can't quite get around him. And he gets to us and he says, excuse me, excuse me. I come here often looking for people like you. And I just need to tell you something. I am the son of God. I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I have no beginning and I have no end. And I just want you to know that though you were born into sin, And that sin has separated you from me and my father and my spirit. Though since birth you have been my enemy, 
I died for you. The debt that your sin has racked up that you could never have paid, I paid it for you. And I can offer you something that you can never get on your own. I can offer you forgiveness of your sins. I can show you who you are because you can learn who I am. I can offer you life everlasting in the presence of me and God the Father. All you have to do is buy this ticket. But here's the deal. I don't need any money. It's free. If you would just take this ticket, all this and more will be yours. And so we all have to ask ourselves, who is this guy? Because if he is who he says he is, even though it sounds too good to be true, it is the greatest news we will ever hear. So who is this guy? It is the most important question we can answer. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you that you have seen fit to reveal yourself to us and not just reveal yourself to us, but do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for the truth of your word, how it both encourages and convicts and challenges. I pray, God, that for everyone in here, everyone watching online, everyone who is asking in this moment, who are you, God? Who are you, Jesus? We ask that you would speak to our hearts. And may we recognize that you do not ask us to clean ourselves up before we come to you, that you do not ask us to be fully assured and fully confident of who you are and what it means for us to come to you. But you, you say, give me just a shred of faith just a shred of belief and you can work wonders. God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to have a, a song of response. And this is a moment for us not just to sing some more words but to actually respond to God as he has confronted us with his word this morning. And so if you are here this morning and you do not know, or if you're watching online, and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there is no better moment than now to say, God, I don't know fully who you are, but I believe. Help my unbelief. There might be someone here today who's been walking with Jesus for, for some portion of your life. And you might be in a place today where you're like, I am not sure if this is worth it. I'm not sure I believe this. And, and my encouragement to you is as we sing this last song to, to make that your prayer as well. I, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. If that's you, either one of those categories, I'd love to talk with you after service or you can reach out via email to myself or any one of our elders or anyone on staff. Let's worship and then I'll be at, back up for the benediction. Savior, he can move the mountain. My God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. Forever, author of salvation. 
He rose and conquered the grave. Jesus conquered the grave. Whoa. Everyone needs compassion. If you know it, sing it. And everyone needs compassion. Love that's never failing. unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You are loved and you're prayed for and you are sent.